Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Just a reminder before we get started to sign up for my newsletter at jasonpereira.ca, where you'll receive notification of all future podcasts, blog posts, and other goings on. Now on today's show. Today in the show, I have Andrew D'Souza, co-founder and CEO of ClearBank. ClearBank is an online lender to businesses that helps business gain access to capital through royalty models that serve as an alternative to lending and venture capital. And with that, here's my interview with Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Jason. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Oh, my pleasure. So Andrew D'Souza, co-founder and CEO of ClearBank. Tell us about ClearBank. Yeah, so ClearBank, we're aiming to help more founders access capital across the globe than has ever been possible before. And we do that through a non-dilutive uh, revenue share structure. And so we can fund the business to continue to accelerate their online growth in exchange for a fixed portion of revenue until we get our initial investment back plus a fixed percentage uh, ranging typically between 6 and 12% back. So basically, you're providing capital through a royalty model, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. And our goal has been our goal has always been to help founders win, help founders be more successful, tilt the balance of power in favor of founders versus capital providers and banks and other people who may have had different interests and, and have had structures that are much more favorable to them. We're trying to tip that balance of power and democratize access to capital for founders, regardless of where you come from. Excellent. So we can dive into some of those other providers and you know why the limits of capital are there and how that's changed. But let's first dive into the history of ClearBank. So tell me about the origin of it. What was the niche that was, or the need that in the market that needed to be served that you found? I'd studied engineering and spent a couple of years at McKinsey and in, in a consulting firm and then got involved in startups. And so moved out to Silicon Valley, built a few tech companies in a number of different spaces. And between Silicon Valley and Toronto was where I spent the last 10 years of my career in a couple of roles. One was, you know, in a go-to-market, leading sales and marketing. And then about half of my time was actually spent fundraising. And that meant getting on planes and flying to all the major cities, pitching investors. You take 100 meetings and you get you, you know, two or three investment proposals over a few months. And then that's for the right to give up a chunk of your business ownership and control to an investor. And then, and then your job becomes, you know, investor management and board management. And so I found most founders just don't, one, they don't even know, they don't have access to the networks to get the meetings, right? They didn't go to the right uh -huh. school or they don't have the right family members or connections. And then once they get the meetings, they don't have three months to take off running their business to go fundraise. So an equity, particularly in venture capital, is a very expensive form of capital because it's designed for high-risk investments. And I think there's, there's certainly a place for that. But once you've de-risked your business to a certain point, and you know a dollar in equals more than a dollar out over a fixed period of time, it starts to feel very, very expensive for the risk that these investors are taking. But there hasn't really been a better alternative for businesses that want to continue to invest in growth. And so that's a big part of what Michelle, my co-founder, and I had designed. Michelle had very almost the opposite experience. She bootstrapped her first four businesses. She sold her last company to Groupon. And then for the last five years, she's been an investor on a show called Dragon's Den, which is our version of Shark Tank in Canada. And so she would see at first, we, we had it first. And exactly. for the record, it's our version of Shark Tank from the UK, which was actually a version of a Korean show called Tiger Standard, something like that. Anyway, yes, Koreans that's right. Have, yeah, that's right. They're always, yeah, yeah yes. it's, it's sort of moved across the world, continent by continent. Yeah. But, you know, Michelle would see all these entrepreneurs from across, across Canada come and pitch their businesses and give up 20, 30, 50% of their company really for just incremental budget to buy inventory and invest in marketing. And after a while, it started to feel pretty unfair. And so we, we designed a structure that we thought was much much more fair for them and better for us because we didn't need to wait until they sold their business or something to get our investment back. And so that's been working really well. We've funded about 2,500 businesses globally, over a billion dollars, and, and are continuing to accelerate. 
Excellent. So let's talk first about the other forms of raising capital. And we've already started talking about VCs. We're going to go to that and into banks. And then we'll uh, we'll dive into how it is you execute. So I often have a lot of startups come to me just by nature of the podcast and, and start, you know, early guys who've never done it before. And to them, the concept of VC money is almost like it's sexy and it's almost like a badge of honor that they capture it. And some mm-hmm. of it is a real is getting to realize the reality of it. Yeah, it can be it can be wonderful. It can be fuel, rocket fuel to your to your hockey stick if that's what you have. But realize that you take VC money, you're on a treadmill. And you're basically, as you said just now, three months to raise capital and hundreds of meetings to get there. And then your only job once you take that money is to basically use that money to get to the milestones, to get to the next level of being able to do the next three month uh, cycle of of marketing your business yet again. And uh, I'm wondering, so in past experience, how much of your time would you say of the entire time you were at some of these companies was spent as a percentage of your total allocation in just fundraising alone? Because that can be pretty daunting. Yeah. I mean, if we were fundraising every 12 to 18 months and it was, it's typically a three month process. And that's if you're a yeah. mission, right? If you've done it before. So it's like 20% of your time, pretty easily can be 20% yeah. of your time. And if you're in the midst of a fundraise, you're not really doing anything else. You're sort of right that quarter off from your own productivity perspective. Yeah. right? And so that's hard for a lot of businesses where the founder is pretty instrumental to running the business and continuing to grow it. And so I think one of the biggest things is VCs have done a great job of branding sort of themselves and being able to say, there's a correlation between me investing in your company and your company being successful. It's hard to prove whether there's much causation you know, in that, <laughs> but, but they're good at picking winners and they're good at convincing those good companies to take their money. I think the one thing I would, I would say for founders is think about the use of funds, right? Think about, do I, am I investing in something that is highly uncertain with a very long payback period? Right. If I'm investing in R&D and I've got to get a team of scientists to go into you know, a room for two years and come out with something that could revolutionize my industry, but may never work, that's a pretty good use of venture capital. Right? That's kind of mm-hmm. what, that, what equity capital is designed for, is high variability, a lot of uncertainty in both the upside and in the timing of, of that upside. And that's where you want an equity partner. But if you've de-risked your business... And if you understand your sales and marketing and your inventory turns or your customer break-even points and, and your churn, equity is a very, very expensive way to fuel that growth. So I think that's, um, you know, it's really about like, where are, you, where are you investing? And there's a place for equity in certain types of investments, but it's not everywhere. Yeah. And I mean, not every business is built for venture capital. I actually had a really good uh, interview with a VC on my other podcast, Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners, that uh, Stephanie Chu of uh, Portage Ventures where oh, we yeah. very much talk. Yeah, I'm sure you guys have definitely crossed yeah. paths. And we uh, we talked about, you know, when is it you should be and when is it you shouldn't be and understand what the realities of that are. And I think anyone who's interested in raising VC capital should really take a listen to that one. So that's, you know, the VC route. Again, the next option is, of course, the banks. And that's the traditional method of borrowing. And I, as I always say with banks is people have a misconception that these companies will actually take risk. <laughs> they are as risk averse as anything that exists out in this world. And even more so since regulatory changes happened post 2008, where they, their capital ratios have to be very much tilted towards almost riskless assets. So yep. they very much, if, if you want the old saying is if, if you want an egg from a bank, you better give them the chicken. And That's right. so you're, you want money to, to help fund your business. You're signing over your own personal welfare or personal assets in order to secure those loans. And it is not easy. I, I get, it gets harder and harder with every business I talk to about just to secure those that kind of lending. So there's been a big kind of boom in alternative lenders and spaces like this. And I'm glad to see people like you are, are doing that. So let's talk about how you 
implement your solution. So what is involved from a vendor standpoint? I find I need, I need to raise funding. I'm very early stage. I find ClearBank. I turn to you. What does that experience look like? Yeah. So we try to make it as seamless as possible. It's connect your online accounts. So we just focus on online businesses. And that means you find your customers online, you deliver your service online, they, they pay you online. So we connect your online accounts that you use to find your customers, whether those are ad channels or billing platforms or whatever, what have you. For e-commerce companies, it's their e-commerce platform. For B2B companies, it's usually a billing system. The way that you process your payments, and then we connect your online accounting systems and bank accounts. And through all of that data, we get a pretty good picture of the inflows and outflows of capital from your business and an incremental dollar spent on sales or marketing or inventory, we can tell what that turns into in revenue over what period of time. And that's what our models are tuned to. And so we try and say, look, you know, within a few minutes, you can connect your accounts and we can present you a couple of offers that on which terms we could fund you. And so we try and remove all of the headache and all the hassle of dealing with banks. And like, like you were saying, banks are not really in the business of taking risk, right? That's not, not their business model. They are designed to not lose money and they're designed to make sure that the security that they take ensures they don't lose money. And so mm -hmm. for most small business owners, that means a personal guarantee. That means you're basically putting a second lien on your house and all of your other assets in case your business fails because banks are just not set up to understand the viability of a business being successful. And they're not taking the upside of, of that business being successful either. And so they're really just, they're focused on unlooking capital with almost zero risk. And that's how yep. they've been regulated. That's how they've been regulated as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I've had uh, people come to me and say, okay, so if I come to the bank with $250,000, how much will they lend me? I'm like, well, they'll take your money, put it in a GIC, and then give you a line of credit for $250,000. And they're like, it's exactly. why would I do that? It's like, well, I go to them with a down payment to buy a house and I get you know this much lent to me. I'm like, no, you go to them with a down payment to buy a house, you enter into a partnership to buy an asset worth that much money, and then they take the entire thing as security. So exactly. you have to understand it's the exact same thing. So, and what I will say is the trend I've seen later lately uh, that's been even getting worse is that there's really kind of multiple levels to entrepreneurs in banking. And there's a small business banking, which is, hey, these companies are small. We can't really, we don't have, you know, these loans are small. We're not going to spend that much time on them. So here's a checklist, right? And if, you, if you're a bank, if you're a business that fits the checklist, fine, we'll lend to you. But if you don't check every box on that list, oh, there's nothing we can do for you. And only in, when you get to the level of commercial banking, where they actually get to loan sizes and business sizes, where you have to have loans in the seven figures or plus to, to get their attention, do they take the time to understand how your business works, right? In which case, then it becomes, they may have said no to you when you were a little bit smaller, but they'll say yes to you now. What I think, what I, the way I see your business is working in some degree is that you kind of, you've digitized that entire due diligence process to be able to allow lending that a bank would not do would only do a commercial basis down to the small business basis. Does that seem like a fair statement or about right? Yeah, I think our goal is to provide capital at the very, very earliest stages. Once we have enough data, right? We want to basically take the bias out of this. And so we're mm -hmm. not going to look at you and say, okay, well, where did you go to school? And who do you know? And what's your we're just like, what does your business look like? Yeah. And do you know how to find customers? Like, I don't, I'm not going to pass judgment on the product that you, you offer. If you know how to find your customers and they're willing to pay you and you can run an efficient business, our models will pick that up and we'll continue to fund you. And I think one of the other things that we've just started to see is even at the higher end, the banks, the way that they mitigate the risk on the large deals is they put in a bunch of covenants, right? And they basically say, look, if anything goes wrong in the world that may or may not be your fault or goes wrong with your business, we're actually going to pull our capital back. And we're starting to see yeah. that now, especially in this pandemic. And it's been interesting for us as a business because we're now getting companies that are doing 
three, four, five hundred million dollars in sales, right? And they would certainly qualify for lower cost capital from a bank, but they've had such bad experiences with their banks during time of crisis. Even though their their own business is doing well because they're e-commerce, the banks uh-huh. are like got spooked, pulled all the credit lines, all their warehouse facilities, yeah. and they're like, okay, I'm never signing up. Like they now understand the cost, the actual capital cost of those terms, yeah. which seemed like which I think it was was hard to quantify in the past. Yeah, I think more and more business owners are getting beginning to understand that their relationship with their bank doesn't go very far once things go badly. You know, everybody mm-hmm. when, when things are great, they're they're wonderful to you and you have this great relationship. And the second you need them, they're the fair weather friend of all fair, fair weather friends, right? And it's it's only something I think we're gonna see intensify. And again, like I said, I think that there's I've spoken to a number of people in non-traditional lending spaces, lending to businesses. And far superior experiences, far superior um, like lenses on the business because they're taking in data. Your comment about, I'm not going to judge what it is you you sell because, I mean, I'm sure you've seen some of the craziest things make money over the years. I mean, I've seen things I'm just looking at them and saying, wait a minute, this is, this is a 10-figure business. How? I don't understand. And right, so the proof is in the pudding. And you guys, I mean, by nature, yourself, Michelle, you've, you guys have done this, right? Like you've seen what it takes to create lead gen and how the, what the conversion cycles look like in the payment cycle. So all that data coming in is stuff that with a language you were speaking the entire time. So to me, it makes perfect sense that you solved the problem that you had in the past. So well done in that regard. Yeah, I think, I mean, and, and this is, you know, it's, it doesn't end with me and Michelle. Our, our entire company, everybody who interacts with our company has been a founder of some kind, right? They either have come well, I only know about the two of you. So. Yeah. But like, I mean, we hire entrepreneurs, right? So yep. top to bottom, anybody you talk to within the company, on the product team, on the engineering team, on the sales team, marketing team, everybody has been an entrepreneur and a founder and has lived and breathed the struggles that our customers or the founders that we back face every day. And so we have a pretty high level of empathy for, for sort of what they're going through and a real connection to the mission of the company. And I think that more than anything, I think that probably comes across when customers are interacting with our company because we are ex- we exist for them, right? We exist to help them be more successful in what is a pretty unfair world for founders. Uh-huh. And I, I don't think banks would say the same. You know, they, no. They just have, like, yeah. <laughs> no, they would not. So, okay. So I go through this process. You guys are taking it, sucked in all my data. You come back. What are you coming back with? What does the offer look like? Yeah. So it's a range. It basically depends on your margins and how much revenue share you can support, but it's like, could be X per se could be like, here's $50,000 for 5% of your sales until we get our money back plus 6% or $100,000 for 10% of your sales. But typically it's, yeah, it's an investment upfront. And then it's, it's a rev share percentage until we get our investment back plus a fixed fee. So you've, I mean, you've done the math, you understand, you understand their bottom, what their bottom line looks like. You know that they can support X percentage coming off the top per month, guessing the, the size of what they're looking for and the amount of time to get paid back to term is the upside you're looking to see on that. And then they're free and clear, right? Exactly. Fantastic. Yeah. So in general, I mean, you're, you're seeing all kinds of online businesses, any kind of verticals in particular that seem to focus in or zero in on your needs? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we see a lot of online consumable businesses that are doing really well. Subscription businesses do incredibly well, especially once you, if you've got a product people love and you become part of their daily habits, whether those are food and beverage or staple goods or health and wellness and supplements and nutrition and things like that. I think those, those businesses do incredibly well. If you can build a long-term relationship with your customer, continue to listen to your customer and introduce new products into that customer base. You know, we love those types of businesses. And then things that traditionally haven't been e-commerce focused that are really starting to break in and that's apparel and furniture and home goods. I think we're starting to see, especially in this environment, that people are learning to buy those things online and are having a pretty great experience. 
so we're seeing a lot a lot, a lot of shift in, into that into that side as well and then on the b2b side anything software as a service we help people basically turn monthly recurring revenue into annual recurring revenue pull those pull those cash flows up front and continue to reinvest in growth without having to take further equity dilution now i mean from your standpoint you're accepting the risk and variability of the businesses you're you're lending money to right i mean cuz mm-hmm. if you're taking a slice off the top that top drops by 15% covid hits whatever it is there's a cut there you suffer from that cut as well. Is there anything you're doing to mitigate that risk or is it simply just through diversification? Yeah, a lot of it, I mean, it comes down to our models, right? So we build a revenue prediction for all of the companies and you know, our revenue prediction is probably a little bit more conservative than the founders just because founders are by nature optimistic and you know, I, I totally get that. But because we have unlimited, you know, really unlimited downside on these deals, we sort of project out the revenue and say, okay, well, what's the range that we think this revenue could materialize in? And then the other thing is we really try and help the founders decide how to spend their capital, right? And where, you know, which channels to spend. So we have a lot of data now. We've got over 10,000 businesses connected. Hmm. We see what works for what types of businesses at what stage. And so now we're starting to provide those insights back to them to help them really understand at this stage, what should my media mix be? What should my mix between my revenue and my spend and my inventory? So we're actually doing what we can to help them be more successful in the way that they capitalize and spend their, their capital. And we even price that a bit differently. So when we know that there's a channel that's working, we'll offer a lower cost capital than on something that we don't know, we're not not as certain about. Interesting. So you're basically providing them with benchmark data, almost consultancy service at the same time, which is, again, another valuable component of this. And then, again, I, I love the fact that you've incentivized the right actions through lower cost of capital. It's the Charlie Munger saying, if you can work on incentives, work on nothing else. So you guys are very data-driven, clearly. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how much, you know, you look at the, you're looking very clear at the business, you're saying, not judging the product, all that sort of stuff. Traditionally, the banks have the, you know, the four C's that they look at is what they typically look at. How much does, do you look at the lenders or the borrowers themselves? Like how much attention are you paying to who it is who's borrowing you beyond just the economics of the business itself? Like the business owner and, and yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we really try. I mean, look, our again, our mission is we think that there's a lot of systemic bias in the way that financing decisions are made, both on the equity and on the debt and banking side. And our goal is to eliminate that bias because I think the more you look at the founder and you say, well, you know, does this look like somebody else who's paid me back in the past? And the more you ingrain that systemic bias and that inequality and you shut out people who don't look like the people that have been successful in the past. And our view is we want to capture the, we want to support and capture the economic opportunity of, of serving that underserved class of people. Cause I think that's where a lot of the creativity comes from and a lot of the untapped opportunity. And so our system, when we don't look at the founder, right, we don't pull your personal credit score. We don't look at you face to face. Like we don't like, we don't look at where you went to school. We don't look at like your personal track record because people have all kinds of different backgrounds and inspiration and motivation can be struck at all different times in life and, and different situations. And so our goal is really just to say, if you've built a business and if you've got a product that people want and you know how to find those people, like, I don't care what you look like and I don't care where you come from. So that's our kind of almost founding hypothesis. And so we'll see how it all plays out. But so far it's working. Yeah. So for the record, that was uh, uh, something I pitched to you underhand to, so you can lob it out of the park. Um, <laughs> because just in, in general, I mean, just based on the, pre- the preliminary conversation and the answers and what I'm seeing here, I totally expected that answer. And again, you know, there is, no matter what you say, there's tons of inherent bias. It's evidenced by the, fa- by the lack of funding to female founders. It's evidenced by the pack, lack of funding to minority founders. It's evidenced by the fact that, you know, if you don't have the conventional look or, or style of success, 
you're not going to, you're not going to get as much money out of people. And, and part of it is doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily systemic racism or, or sexism. It's just, it's, un, uh, we're all biased in some way, shape or form consciously or unconsciously to whatever it is we've experienced in the past. And unfortunately, the first thing people judge you on is when they see you, when you walk in by taking that, the approach of all you, well, just through your system of we're just going to take in the data and that's mm-hmm. the first thing you see, like you're already, even if you do have to have a Zoom meeting at the end of this with someone, you've already taken away all the inherent bias of the business before you're putting them in a position of strength with a strong business, as opposed to a position of this person doesn't look, I lent to someone to look like this two weeks ago and it blew up in my face, right? Like, yeah, rid of that. I mean, we've got, so, we, you know, we fund this fantastic business based in San Francisco called Farm Girl Flowers. Everybody knows the brand, you know, it's like the bike courier of fresh bouquet of flowers to you. They're fantastic flowers. And the founder was a high school dropout and went to pitch a bunch of investors on the business model. And everybody was like, immediately, as they looked at her background or whatever, we're like, no, yeah, we can't, you know, there's no way we can invest in this company. And it's a fantastic business. It's doing incredibly well. I don't want to disclose their sales, but it's like, it would put most venture-backed companies, consumer brands to shame. Again, I never judge. Bicycle flowers. I never judge, but I'm often astonished. But she was just passed over by by uh, the venture ecosystem like has been a great partner great advocate of ours and we're big supporters of what she does and it's just like it's those types of business i wouldn't have guessed either right like i you know how, how big yeah. did that business get but that's why we exist it's interesting as someone whose who's day job is, is financial advising predominantly mainly business owners i hear this story about people getting passed up because they didn't fit whatever profile and it's like i'm sorry most of the millionaires i know who are self-made, like multi-millionaires, I know that are self-made, did not go to the best schools. They, in the most part, they're, the majority of them are immigrants who came here with a high school ed- education at best. And yeah. just through sheer, nap, you know, they, and, but you know what? Some of these people, you hear them talk about business, they understand it inside and out and teach a freaking masterclass on it because they learned it in the school of life, right? And right. it's just, I look at that and I wonder how much of the system self-selects out for just what they think looks high probability of success versus what actually is high probability of success. And I don't have an answer to that. I wonder if there's some sort of study done. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's a very limiting view, unfortunately. It is. It is. And I think it's the people that control the capital, they come from certain circles, right? And they've always decided sort of what got funded and what got built. I mean, I, I talk about this with our team, but like, even if you think back to medieval times, the people with the capital decided which yes. castles got built and which roads got built. And today it's like which university projects get funded, like it's and which companies yeah. get built, right? And like if we can flip that, if we can say no, the people, the people that are taking the risk, people with the ideas, people that are putting their blood, sweat, and tears into these businesses, they should get to decide. And capital is really just a commodity, right? You're coming along for the ride. And so you don't get to call the shots anymore. That's our mission. So I get heated on on some of this stuff when I when I think about it because like. It just seems so unfair. I mean, maybe for the first time, you can actually use an unbiased data set to help make these decisions. So it feels like an inevitability for there to be, a, you know, an almost upending of the way that capital has been allocated to entrepreneurs and founders. And we're just hoping to sort of pierce that veil and, and create this sort of flood behind it. I think that one of the challenges you do face, though, has to be just an education piece altogether, right? Even, you know, with other different versions of, of uh, funding that exist outside the normal ecosystem. I mean, people think of the bank, even if they've never, you know, even if they watched a single episode of Shark Tank, they've at least heard of, of, of venture capital, right? They don't necessarily understand that options like you exist. So how do you get out there? How do you get your message done? What, what is the typical reaction you get from someone who didn't know things like you existed? Yeah. So, I mean, a big part of it is, I mean, this is why we do podcasts. This is why we do press. We have an outbound and, and sales team. We have a great partner network. And it's actually interesting. We've got actually some great venture capital investors who the average VC sees a thousand 
pitches a year and invest in five companies maybe. And so they see a lot of businesses and they're like, look, my capital is not the right fit for you, but we know ClearBank, right? So we actually have a, a network of VC partners and ad agencies and people that send us referrals. And so we're trying to create a new financial instrument, new asset class. There is some heavy lifting and, and we do have to go tell the world and, and tell the story, but it's starting to change, right? And people are realizing that there's different ways of capitalizing the company and there's trade-offs. And if you want to maintain ownership and control, then dilution and ownership and control are important things to consider. So we're starting to see a generation of founders who are coming at this from a different angle. And then I think when you combine that with did you really get into your business to raise capital? Or did you get into your business to build great products and serve your customers? You know, that starts to get very clear for people. So, you know, it's an uphill battle for sure. We're certainly trying to, to educate people on the options available to them, but we're not the only ones that are doing it. And I think we're already starting to see the tide turn a bit. Yeah. And I'll go back to the comment about you didn't start a business to raise funding, especially when you have like technical founders where the, you know, so much of success rides upon their attention to the product. I almost feel like it's this problem without a solution to some degree. It's like they're given so much runway, but then they got to raise more money. And of course, if you're the people cutting those checks, you want to talk to the technical founder and understand you know, the capabilities of that person. But then you're simultaneously taking them off the project, which just sets them back further. And it's just this really ridiculous, like yin-yang counterintuitive thing that's happening there. And it can be, and I've, I've talked to several founders who they're just like, yeah, so just close the last round, going on vacation, then I can work for 12 months and then I got to start again, right? Yeah. <laughs> It is painful, but for the right kind of business, it is the right solution. And that's, you know, it is what it is. So, you know, this is where you guys are currently. Any thoughts towards how you can expand into other types of lending or other verticals or anything of the sort or other, just maybe other industries? Yeah. So there's a couple of, so we started in consumer products, direct consumer brands, online brands. We've expanded into B2B. So we fund a lot of B2B SaaS companies and, and online software companies. And then we're expanding globally. So we're expanding into different countries and different geographies. I mean, as hard as it is for founders to raise capital in Canada and the US, it's like an order of magnitude harder in every other country in the world. Oh God, um, in Europe and everywhere. Yeah. Oh my, yeah, it's not, no kidding. So that's expanding our, our market. And then I think what we look at is how do you expand to be even more equity-like? How do we actually create products that have take a longer time duration, higher risk profile, higher upside? And then how do we look more bank-like where we say, look, we can, we can actually, if we understand the downside security and we actually understand the stability of the company, we can take a lower lower cost of capital, but mitigate the downside. So those are the, those are the initiatives that I'm pushing our finance, capital markets, and data science teams on. Mm. You know, can we meet the needs of lower risk companies with a lower yield product and higher risk companies uh, with a higher yield product, basically, or higher risk investments? And what those look like, they'll probably be pretty novel because we think we can design new financial instruments instead of taking the traditional equity and debt products, but we think we can design better products for today's online businesses. Well, we're, we're in a different paradigm of business. And frankly, I think that requires different paradigm, th different thinking on how we do fund these things. And it makes sense. I mean, you guys are, I can't imagine the data sets you're building from taking in all this information and the risk models and how robust they're becoming. And actually, it's a, it's a really good question altogether. So in general, the risk models that you built to date, how have they held up, uh, especially in times like today? I mean, without divulging trade secrets, uh, yeah. how, how happy are you with that? Yeah, no, we've been we've been incredibly happy and our capital providers have been incredibly happy. I mean, look, we've seen almost every other, whether it's bank or small business lender, sort of shut down, right, during this time because their models didn't perform. We've been fortunate enough to be almost exclusively funding online businesses, which are we've had some businesses that are highly correlated with travel and, and live events and they've they've certainly struggled. Mm. But the majority of online businesses, I think, on average, have seen an increase in demand. And so that's that's certainly worked in our favor. But then Beyond that, 
we've been plugged into the data. So we are actually able to understand. And even for the companies that struggled, we actually often knew when they were going to face difficulties before they did. So we came in proactively and, and said, hey, your business is probably going to slow down. We're going to cut your repayment rates for you know, a period of time to help you get through it. And then 70% of those companies have actually emerged and they're like, they've, re- they've pivoted their business model around serving a different customer base, or they've pivoted to making PPE and stuff like that. And they're doing well again. And we provided them that, that relief. We got to help them get ahead of it. And so we're just uniquely positioned to do that. And so through, we were very worried in March. We we're like, hey, what's going to happen? We slowed down a little bit from mid-March to mid-April. We saw the models and the performance continue to, to be predictive and work. And since then, we've just been sort of accelerating. And so it's been um, where we feel like we're in a really good spot. And our capital providers who are, you know, have been exposed to other places have been said, have basically come to us and said, how much more can you deploy? Because you're the only place that's still writing checks and the only place that is still can still deploy our capital. And so it's, you know, it's a good place to be in this environment for sure. That is the most remarkable thing you've said this entire interview, this entire, like, we got ahead of it. We detected there were problems. We contacted them. We worked collaboratively with them to lower their cut back on our take is in order to make them more robust, as opposed to doubling down on security, which is the typical traditional model. That, frankly, if anyone listening is looking for financing and contemplating using ClearBank, that sentence, that little blurb alone should be enough to sell you on the fact that this is a partnership and not a, a vendor experience. Like this is remark, like fantastic. I cannot commend you enough on that attitude in general. You're definitely walking the walk with that one. No, I appreciate it. I mean, look, we, we want you to win, right? We understand that there's risk. There's risk in funding a business. There's risk in starting a business. And whatever we can do to make you successful and establish a long-term relationship, that's in our best interest, right? Our goal is not to say, all right, well, let's try and things are getting bad. Let's grab whatever we can and try and get cents on the dollar for whatever and decimate your business. Our goal is do whatever we can to help you make it at the other side. And even if it hurts our return for a period of time, we'd rather get a long-term relationship and long-term customer out of it than try and pick your business apart for scraps. That is uh, such a refreshing thing to hear at this time when you know we're hearing all kinds of stuff about the lack of rent relief being granted to tenants and all kinds of other short-sighted things being done by partners and, and suppliers of capital. Yeah, this is uh, you know a little restoring my faith in humanity a little bit more in a darker <laughs> period, Andrew. That's, uh, that's a remarkable it. thing. So another another question for you. The out of curiosity, so these these loans get paid back. How much repeat business are you seeing from the same from the same businesses we brought from you previously? Yeah, we typically, you know, we'll fund a company about three times a year. It's still early to know how many years they'll stay with us, but they keep coming back. So even before they fully paid off, if their business has grown, we'll we'll top them up with, you know, even more attractive terms. And our goal is again to be to just be part of your budgeting process, right? We want to say, look, you know, I've got this new initiative I want to invest in or this new growth campaign, ClearBank can fund it and de-risk that investment for me. And so we're starting to embed ourselves into the planning process. There's some companies we fund every month, right? We're like, what's your monthly budget? We'll just keep you funded. And that's a, kind of the way we want to think about it. Because once we're plugged in, there's not a, you know, we don't go through an underwriting and negotiating process every time we make a top up or a new investment. It's just like, oh yeah, here's, you know, you have a standing offer that's sitting there ready for you. And so that's our goal is to be, is to just change the way people think about capitalizing their company. And instead of it being, I'm going to take 18 months worth of capital today at today's prices, just take what you need for the next month, week, whatever, right? And if you can remove the friction, then it becomes much more efficient. It's refreshing to hear a funder of businesses talk in this manner, especially like, you know, hey, you're literally going to fund you every month because we're getting the data. We can see what's going on. You know, you clearly you're pulling it off. Here you go. It's, it's you know, it's, it's like a vote of, it's like a vote of endorsement on a monthly basis for some of these business owners. So uh, remarkable and I think commendable as well. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing that 
in especially you know Canada, the U.S., wherever else you looked at, so many nations, the lifeblood of any economy is small business. And unfortunately, so many of the capital systems are almost stacked against your congratulations. You want to start a business? You got a remarkable idea? That's fantastic. Here, mortgage your entire house. Um, exactly. <laughs> like, like it's it's like we're asking people to take disproportionate risk. I mean, they may get disproportionate gain, but if they pull it off, but it's it's wow, what a what a lopsided offering in some cases. And then you're finding ways to legitimately be a partner. Again, I commend you on that. I can't say any positive things about that. So before we wrap up, Andrew, there's three questions I ask everyone on the podcast yeah. before we uh, we wrap up. The first one is, is if you had one wish for something you could change in your business or the industry as a whole, what would it be? Uh, one wish. I mean, I think if every investor had to make a decision without ever looking at the founder, and their resume or their face, I think very good things would end up happening. And whether that's venture investor or that's banker, I think it would force everybody to actually look at fundamentals of a business and the, you know, the operational uh, success that a business has faced and immediately sort of eliminate bias. I think that I'd love to see a version of Shark Tank that looked much more like The Voice. You know what yeah. I mean? I think that would be awesome. That makes sense. It's interesting. The yeah, because I mean, people, you know, people say things. Oh, you know, like guy had a hard time looking me in the eyes or whatever it is. This could be their own personal anxiety. And I can't remember. I think it was in a Malcolm Gladwell book or where I heard it. But there was the entire story of the uh, New York Philharmonic Orchestra. How they basically were very disproportionate gender-wise, and they started having everybody audition behind the screen so that no one could tell if it was a male or female what the person looked like. And once they started doing that, the gender balance just immediately changed overnight. Like the new hires yeah. were. It was almost 50 50 it was it wasn't quite but it was a massive shift and the not again not calling in those people who are judging them sexist it was just maybe in your mind there's something that a celloist looks like and oh that That's person it. does not i mean even um and, and it came up and it was in moneyball or like the most ridiculous thing i'd ever heard in baseball recruiting is the good face like he's got a baseball face like that's literally something that recruiters that the scouts actually said and it's just yeah. you think about how ridiculous that sounds but subconsciously, so much of so many of us succumb to those inherent biases. So I agree with you. I think uh, let let um, what's what was it? Uh, Bill Belichick said your um, your record is what speaks for you, or something like that. Something at the end of the day, it's that's yeah, it's it. exactly right. Yep. So second question I have for you: What's been the biggest challenge in getting ClearBank to where it is today? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot. You know, look, we're introducing an. <laughs> A new financial instrument, right? A new asset class yeah. into a very, very traditional industry and raising capital. You know, we've raised over $400 million for this product, which was not easy and it was expensive. It was painful and just sort of educating Wall Street on there is a different way to allocate capital. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, there's a lot of untapped opportunity if you can figure it out and use technology to figure it out. Figure it out. A lot of people pay lip, ser lip service to that idea. But when it really comes to writing a check against it, it was very, very difficult. So that yeah. has been a real challenge for us and proving that we knew how to find find a different set of businesses and fund them in a new way and not lose our shirt doing it was and we yeah, we I mean we lost a lot of money in the early days and we had to sort of learn a lot of lessons, but that is all part of training of an AI model is you gotta have negative yeah. signals to do that as well. It's interesting because I feel like it's a problem that I'm sure every VC or banker would acknowledge existed. And mm -hmm. just, you know, someone comes along and says, I'm gonna solve it this way. And it's like you know, it's it's still it's still compelling to understand that that is possible. Uh, so I I would I gotta think hopefully the ones that you know if I was in that position hearing this thinking you're right this does exist but have the bravery to say yes okay we gotta try something to fix it because the opportunity is enormous. Exactly. No, uh, it was uh, it was a scary time for sure. I'm not not gonna lie. <laughs>
No, uh, that's that's a, that's a big, big number to raise. So good on you for doing it. So last question I have for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting up in the morning every every day to fight the good fight? I mean, it's it's the founders a week back, right? I get on the phone. With, yeah. I try and get on the phone with like multiple founders a week and just talk to them about their business and their plans. And like, you just, you see the opportunity and you see what, you see their passion and their vision for what they build. And we can just make their lives a bit easier. And if we can just put our thumb on the scale for them. I just, I mean, I honestly, I honestly think that's how you solve most of the world's problems, right? And whether that's like Elon Musk, like founders that are like yeah. solving climate change and space travel, or just people that are building a business for their own community and their own family and are living, like they're living model life, they're living the lives of inspiration for the people that they interact with every day and their employees and they're creating something for themselves. And it's like, you know, that's how you lift communities out of poverty. That's how you lift families, you know, into safety. And so that's what gets me excited is if you can really democratize access to capital, you can really tip the balance of power in favor of founders that I think you do a lot of good in the world and, and inherently solve some of the problems that we're facing as humanity right now. Yeah, it's interesting. We all, uh, I think there's almost universal acceptance of the fact that economic empowerment is the way towards a better future. Yet when it comes to the enablement of that economic empowerment, we have still all these traditional obstacles and hurdles and big believer in everything you just said there, man. So thank you. This has been a great conversation. Um, I encourage anyone who's in a situation where ClearBank can help to take a good look at them. I think uh, if Andrew's clear mission and purpose didn't come resonating through this podcast and you weren't paying close enough attention because uh, there's, a, there's a lot of, you know, if you're looking for a partner, great. This is the place to go. If you're looking for, for someone to squeeze you, go to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> no, appreciate that. Appreciate right. that. No, it's like very personal for me and, and I care a lot about the mission. So thank you for having me. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. So that was my interview with Andrew D'Souza of ClearBank. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, and I hope you clearly detect just how passionate he is about the subject. Highly encourage you to utilize them if it's if you are a candidate for them. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever is your podcast, because it really does help people find us. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.